Luke chapter 3, 23 to 38. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of, Ma of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Metatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of, of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Whew. Okay, please be seated. I got through it. Let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we approach this passage of your holy scriptures this morning, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that it is vitally important to us as part of your authoritative, inspired, inerrant, and clear word, part of your sufficient word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see in this passage who Jesus is. Help us to see who he is and what he has done. Help us, Lord, to worship him in spirit and the truth. Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage this morning, that you would give us a high view of the genealogies in Scripture. Lord, that you would help us to see that it is all part of your word. And it's all necessary for our salvation and for your worship. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what was going through your mind just now as I read through Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38? Were you able to stick with me, or did your mind wander? Or maybe you're wondering for me to slip up at some point. Were you thinking about, about these individuals and what they have to tell us about God, or were you thinking about last night's hockey game? Or were you thinking about what's for dessert after the service? Well, if we're honest, we have to admit that sometimes our minds wander when we're even, even reading some of the most powerful passages of Scripture. But I think it's especially true, isn't it, when we read the, the genealogies. When we get to the genealogies in our Bible reading, sometimes we're, we're tempted to tune out. I know when I, when I get to, to First Chronicles and that, that huge list of names, nine chapters of names, I take a breath. And I have to admit that sometimes I'm glad when it's finally finished. But what do you do when you get to a genealogy? I asked this as well when we got to the genealogies in, in Genesis chapter 5 and, and 10 and 36. I remember sort of bracing myself. I was beginning to, to preach to those passages thinking, okay, here we go. I'm thinking, what, what could I possibly draw out of this passage? And if that's true for me to, when I begin to, to prepare to preach it, what about you when you prepare to read it? Do you skim it? Do you skip it? Do you suffer through it? Or do you study it? Sadly, few of us take the time to actually study the genealogies in the scriptures. 
But as is always true of Scripture, every single part of Scripture, studying it reveals glorious truths and yields great blessing. This passage is no exception. Even the genealogies are part of the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 to 17. Well, there are five essential elements to having a right understanding of the Word of God. All Scripture is inspired. In, that, in other words, all Scripture has been inspired by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit carried along godly men so that every single word in the original manuscripts is exactly what God intended it to be. The Bible is inerrant. There are no mistakes in Scripture. From Genesis 1.1 to the end of Revelation 22, there are no mistakes in Scripture. It is all the inerrant word of God. And because it is inspired, because it is inerrant, it is also authoritative. It is our supreme guide, our ultimate and really only final guide for life and worship. So the scriptures that are inspired, inerrant, and authoritative. And every passage of scripture is equally inspired, inerrant, and authoritative, but there's also two more aspects of Scripture that are important, in fact, vital for you to have in order to have a right understanding of the Word of God. The Word of God is also sufficient. The Word of God is sufficient. That's what we just read from 2 Timothy 3.15. It's, it's sufficient for, for and, and, sorry, 16 and 17. It's sufficient for life and godliness. It is the scriptures. You don't need to go outside of the scriptures in order to understand who God is and how he wants you to live and how he wants you to worship him. So the scriptures are also sufficient. And there's one final thing we need to also remember that the scriptures are perspicuous. Now perspicuous is a, is a fancy way of saying that they're clear. But they're clear. The scriptures are, are clear in order for you to, to, to understand the central message, that you can interpret scripture literally. It is, it is clear. You don't have to look for all kinds of, of hidden meanings. It is clear and easy to be and able to be understood. But while, again, every part of scripture is equally inspired, inerrant, and authoritative, every part of scripture is not equally sufficient. That there are, are some passages which, which you really can't look at on their own. Without, and, and if you try to interpret it on your own, you're really going to have a faulty understanding. You need to look at, at the whole of God's word in order to understand it. You have to cross-check it with, with other passages. The rule of faith is, is that you interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. And it's also true that, that, that not every part of Scripture is equally clear. There are some parts of Scripture that are more difficult to understand. Even even. Peter said that some of the things that, that Paul wrote are hard to understand. So again, in order to be able to understand these things, it's, it's helpful to, to and important, it's vital for you to look at, at other passages and again interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. So again, some parts of Scripture are, are more difficult to understand and need to be looked at in light of other passages of Scripture. And genealogies are just that type of passage. Now, at first glance, genealogies might seem easy to, to understand, easy to interpret, because after all, it's just a list of names, or so it would seem. List of names from, of names from one generation to another generation, or so it would seem. Well, there's actually two kinds of genealogy in Scripture. There are segmented genealogies, and there are linear genealogies. Now, most often when, when you look into your family history, you're, you're looking at a segmented genealogy. It's like a, a family tree, and we find those in the scriptures. That's like uh, Genesis chapter 36. It talks about all the, the different sons and, and, how they, and, and who their children were and so on for, for just a few generations. But a linear genealogy like we have here in chapter 3 of Luke is, is, that is a genealogy that just takes from, from usually from father to son for many, many generations. So this is a linear genealogy. 
So, but genealogies, they, they can be confusing because so many of the names that are contained in the genealogies are, are not only are they difficult to pronounce, but they're unfamiliar to us. We, we really don't know who any of these people are. In fact, quite often when you have a genealogy in Scripture, the only time that name is listed is in that particular genealogy. And so it's, it's hard to say, well, what does that have to do with, with, with the rest of the Scripture? How, how is this important for me to, to understand? Well, let's look this morning at, at Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38, and see what it has to say to us uh, about who God is. So we might worship Him and respond to Him rightly. Well, in this passage, there are 77 names. 77 names listed in this genealogy. 77 generations that are listed from Jesus, if you notice there at the beginning of verse 23, all the way back to God at the end of verse 38. But as you just, if, if you've recently read through this, this genealogy, and, and even as I read it this morning, what, what are some of the names that, that stand out to you? What are the, the, some of the names that you, oh yeah, okay, I know that guy. Well, of course, the first one on the list you know, I hope, Jesus. Right? The name of Jesus should be very, very familiar to you. He is the one who this genealogy is about. He is the one who the gospel according to Luke is about. He is the one whom the scriptures are ultimately about. So, so in order to understand what, what this genealogy has to tell us, one of the things that is really helpful, and this is a, a really good interpretive help for you when you, look, when you come to a genealogy in Scripture, is look for extra information. See, again, at first glance, this is a list of names, but it's not just a list of names. Luke provides us here with, with interpretive information that will help you to understand the importance of this passage. So look at the extra information. The, it, it's provided there for us right in, the, in verse 23, right at the beginning. The first point, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. So this genealogy takes place, it's, it's at the point, so when, when Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30. So what does this detail tell us? Well, it's interesting that, that in, in all four of the gospel accounts, only Luke tells us that Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30. Well, one of the things that, that you see throughout Luke's gospel account is, is that he likes to focus on beginnings. Remember, we just spent, spent quite a bit of time looking at the, the beginnings of John the Baptist, and the beginnings of Jesus. And now he's talking about, about the, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Well, the age of 30 is, is important in the Old Testament. It's when the Levites began their temple service in Numbers 4.23 in the, in the tabernacle. It's also when Joseph entered the service of Pharaoh. Genesis 41.46. It's when Ezekiel began his prophetic ministry. Ezekiel 1.1. It's when David began to reign as king. 2 Samuel 5.4. In the, in the, at the age of 30, in that culture, man was seen to be mature. He was seen to be mature. So then at the age of 30, Jesus was seen to be ready to begin his ministry. Or as we'll see from a little bit later on today and into next week, he was almost ready to begin his ministry. There was still something else that had to take place. Well, what, what other additional information does Luke provide for us? It's again here in verse 23, the second point. Being the son as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Eli. So wh why, why does Luke here insert this parenthesis, as was supposed? Again, this, this extra information is, is supposed to, to, to make your antennae go up. It's supposed to make you think, okay, well, well, this is important. And of course, it is important. It's vitally important. We've already been told from Luke 1, verses 26 to 38, that Joseph isn't Jesus' biological father. Mary is his mother, but Jesus was conceived, was conceived in a womb through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Luke was not Jesus' 
father. In the biological sense, he was his adoptive father. And one of the things that we often don't understand in, the, in the, our culture is, 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 is just how important adoption is. And we, we sang about some of these, these things earlier. And, and, and adoption is being, this is not just, you know, we, um, in, in the book about adoption, it's, I think it's called Adopted for Life by Russell Moore. He says that, that, that we don't look at, at adoption as an adjective or adopted as an adjective. Adopted is a verb. It's, it's the way that you become part of somebody's family. But, but, but you don't refer to your kids as, well, these are my children and these are my adopted children. You say, these are our children. These are our children. And so this was, was really a, um, a, a really well understood in the ancient Near East. That, that when somebody was, was adopted into somebody's family, they were, were not just the legal heir, as important as that was, but they were part of the family. They were, they were fully part of the family. And there was all kinds of ways that, that someone could be adopted, but, but when they were adopted, they, they, were, they were a vital part of the family. And, and we've talked a little bit about this before, but, but at my last church in, in Louisville, like it, it was, there, was, there was quite a culture of adoption where, where many different families who, who already had children of their own had adopted children in order to reflect the gospel because we are adopted in christ we are part of god's family through the blood of christ so then when we when joseph here talks about about joseph being the the father of jesus as it was as was supposed what, what is he saying here well, I think it's, it's one of the things that's it's also important is, is when you have a genealogy in, in Scripture, if you have another genealogy that's, that's similar, that's in the same genre, it, it's helpful to you to compare it with the other one, to, to cross-reference them, to see how they're similar and how they're different. It's going to help you to see this theological message. And so this can be a little bit technical for a moment, but I ask you if you could just follow with me. So turn with me to keep your finger there in Luke chapter 3. And flip back to uh, Matthew chapter 1. This genealogy of Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 17. Remember, these, these are the first verses of the New Testament. Matthew, so Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. This is, this is how the, the Lord wanted to begin after, again, 400 years of silence. This is the, the first things that we have written down. In the, in, this is not the first things that, that took place, but this is the first things that were written down for us in the New Testament. So again, keep your finger in Luke 3, but let's just look at, at, verse, at, at, Ma at Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17 for a moment. Just duck down to verse 16. Notice where he says that, um, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who, of whom was, Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So you see from this, it says that, that Jacob is the father of Joseph. The husband of Mary. Well, so far, so good, right? But now flip back for a second to Luke chapter 3. Who is Joseph's father in verse 23? Eli. So what's going on here? Did, did Matthew make a mistake or, or did Luke make a mistake in, in recording these, these genealogies? Well, of course not. We... we we affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. Every word of God is inspired exactly how God wanted it to be recorded. So there must be some reason why it's recorded in this way. There, there must be some theological importance to there being a difference between the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew and the genealogy of Jesus in Luke. Well, Matthew's genealogy, if you follow it, it follows the line of Joseph. Right? It follows the line of Joseph. It begins with Abraham and it goes all the way down to Jesus through Joseph. Okay? But, but what, why is it, then again, why is there a difference? Why, why is it, he's got Joseph mentioned here, but then Heli, or Eli, the next, the next name. Well, again, we could say we, we know that he didn't make a mistake, but we also know that, that, that there are times in Scripture, in the genealogy, when, when the author skips a name. Okay, we think, well, that's against the rules. Well, whose rules? There, there, again, there's a theological reason for these, for, for these names to be presented as they are. 
there, there are theological reasons why there's names that then you can see this in other genealogies in scripture that, that there are names that Matthew skips. There's names that, that Matthew intentionally skips. There's, there's three lists or three uh, uh, groups of 14, but, but there are, why is it that he skips these names? Well, there, there are those whose names are skipped because they're under a curse. Because they are cursed by God, and so they are, they are taken. It's not like they didn't exist, but in one sense, their name is blotted out. So the name has actually been taken out of the genealogy because they're under a curse from God. Okay, they're under a curse from God. But that does not explain the differences between Luke and Matthew. Because the, the genealogies, although they are very similar, almost the same between Abraham and David, and after that they diverge. They're, they are very, very different. They have very few names in common. Now, one of those names who's different between the genealogy of, in, presented in Matthew and the one presented in Luke should be very familiar to you. Matthew 1.6. David was the father, father of Solomon. Okay, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Again, that's, that's that little piece of information there. The wife of Uriah is also meant to say, hey, there's something important going on here. But we have David, the father of Solomon. Now turn back to Luke. Luke 3, 31. David, sorry, um, Nathan, the son of David. So now we see that it's not, this is a, a line that doesn't go through Solomon, it goes through Nathan, one of David's other sons. So, so these seem to be very different genealogies. Matthew follows the descendants of David through Solomon and Luke through Nathan. And again, they, they, so they look like different genealogies. It's not just those names, not just those familiar ones, but they're very, very different. If you, if you spend some time in them, they're very different genealogies. Both are genealogies of Jesus, but through different people. They're genealogies of Jesus, but through different people. And you might be thinking, well, hang on a second. He said he's going to make this more clear. Now I'm thoroughly confused. Well, just stick with me for a moment. There are two main theories that, to explain what's happening here. Okay, the first is that Matthew gives the genealogy of Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, while Luke gives the genealogy of Mary. Okay, so, so we have in Matthew, it's through Joseph, and in, in Luke, it's through Mary. So if that's the case, then Eli is the father of Mary, and Joseph is his son-in-law. Now, Luke doesn't directly say that, he, that Eli begat Joseph. Okay, if, you, if you look at it in the original, the, the, the verbs there aren't included. They're just, the, the, there's the, um, the possessive form of the noun and the article. Okay, the possessive form. So it's, it's um, so going back again, just, just one example here. So um, Joseph of Eli. Okay, it doesn't ever say son of. That's, that's inserted to help us to understand it. So they would say, again, these, these people would say that, that, that this is Mary's genealogy. And that would make Joseph Eli's son-in-law. Okay, but opponents of this view hold that, that in Jewish culture, genealogies were always listed through the man. Right? There's not any other examples of a genealogy that, that includes or that, that is listed that, that includes the mother. Well, that's not really a problem because this situation is unique, right? The, the birth of Jesus is the only time ever that a child did not have a human father. So that's one theory. The second theory is that Matthew is listing the legal descendants of David, so those who were, were legal heirs to the throne, throne of David. Okay, whereas as opposed to Luke, who's listing the biological descent, the biological genealogy. So if that's the case, then Jacob is the father of Joseph. Jacob, who is the father of Joseph and Matthew, must have died so that 
without a son so that Eli became the legal heir. So there, there are other theories, but those are the two main theories that, to explain what's, what's happening here. Well, the, the legal descendant theory really does a, a, align with Matthew's theological emphasis of the promised Messiah, which had to come through the royal line of David. It also fits what we've seen so far in Luke, that, that Joseph was of the house of David, Luke 1, 27, and that the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, Luke 1, 32. So, so both of these are possible. Both of them are, are possible, but, but we really can't make a firm decision on one or the other. But we do need to understand that both genealogies show that Jesus is the descendant of David. But that's not the main point in Luke. Luke, well, Matthew went back to Abraham, but Luke goes, goes further back. Luke goes all the way back, not just to the beginning but to eternity past. But, but with those technical aspects of, of these two genealogies um, in, in mind, then let's, let's continue to look at, at another major difference between Luke's genealogy and Matthew's. The fact that, that it's probably what you noticed right at the beginning. That Matthew's genealogy starts with Abraham. But Luke's starts with Jesus. Now, both of them are linear genealogies following that, that one line, father to son. But Luke is doing it backwards. Luke is going from son to father. Now, this is the, this is the only place in, in all of Scripture where the genealogy is backwards. Where, where it goes from, from most recent back to the past. So Matthew starts, again, it lines up with their, theological, with their theological emphasis. Matthew starts with Abraham because Matthew has a Jewish emphasis. He wants to show how Jesus is the Messiah in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now we're going to see the importance of Luke, Luke's arrangement of this genealogy as we, as we progress through, especially by the time we get to the end. But for now, again, notice that Luke doesn't stop with Abraham, that he goes all the way back to Adam and then even further back to God himself. So Luke goes to Adam, the, the first man, to show that Jesus is the Savior of all the nations. Now we've discussed this many times already that Luke's emphasis is universal. There is no religion as multicultural as Christianity, right? Hinduism is predominantly an Indian religion. Islam, Middle Eastern and North African. Buddhism, East Asian. Christianity, however, has spread across all continents. And while the numbers of, of true Christians are in reality probably much smaller than the polls will tell you, Christianity cannot be said to be the domain of any one particular region or people group. It is truly a global religion. Continuing the fulfillment of the Great Commission and evidence that Jesus Christ has, has ransomed a people for himself by his blood from every tribe and language and people and nation, Revelation 5, 9. So again, Luke is going all the way back because he has a universal focus for all nations. But now having compared the two genealogies, let's, let's, let's zero in on Luke. Let's just focus on Luke for the remainder of our time. Again, there are 77 names on this list. And many of the names are only mentioned here or are listed elsewhere in the New Testament, but referring to a different person. Or are listed in the Old Testament with a, a variation of the name. So it's, it can be really confusing unless you're very careful with this. We know nothing about many of these names apart from, from their mention here in the genealogy of Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. And it's, it's also confusing because, again, some of the names are listed twice excuse me, are listed twice or even three times. There are three Josephs on this list. Two Mattathiases and one Mathat and one Matatha. So you really need to slow down and, and concentrate. You're going to get all in a jumble. So again, many of these names are, are confusing to us. They're foreign to us, but several of these names will be familiar to you from our studies through Genesis. 
right? And several of these names are going to be familiar to because they're famous. They're a very well-known people in redemption history. Several are famous, but several others are well-known because they're infamous. There are heroes and kings and priests and prophets on this list, but there are also idolaters, liars, adulterers, and murderers on this list. But what do all of these names in this list have in common? All that is except two. They're all dead. They're all dead. Every person on this list, apart from the first person, Jesus, and the last person, God, is dead. Now, there are some people, again, who did some horrible things on this list. Now, many of them we can read in the scriptures, they, they repented and, and are in heaven, but others we really don't know. But like we heard from John the Baptist last week, none of these men could claim to be saved simply because they had Abraham for their father, Luke 3.8. Rather, they were doomed because they had Adam for their father. Their only hope was in the first and the last name on this list. Now friends, if the Lord tarries, you will die. There will come a time when you take your last breath on this earth. And like those on this list, we too were doomed because of Adam, our first father. Like the men on this list, our only hope is in the first name and the last name on this list. We're, we're not saved on the basis of, of our relationship with, or with our father or our grandfather or great-grandfather or, or generations past. We're saved on the basis of our relationship with Jesus Christ. So this genealogy reveals that there's, there's a finiteness to life on this earth as all of these people except for two died and have gone to either a Christless eternity or eternity with Christ. This genealogy also reveals that history is in the hands of the sovereign God. That all history is his story. And the most important part of history is redemption history. The history of what God is doing to bring what God is doing to, to bring history to this point. Bringing each of these men into the world to bring his son into the world. Before Genesis 1 was ever penned, before Genesis 1 ever happened, God had a plan to redeem a people for himself. Now again, we've never heard some of these names apart from this genealogy. We, we really have no idea who they were. But God knew them intimately, especially those who were elect. They are unknown to us, but they are not unknown to God. God was working his purposes in every circumstance and situation of their lives, working everything for their good and for his glory. Brothers and sisters, the same is true for you. You can't say that Jesus came through you but you can say that Jesus came for you. Those men on that list faced trials. Some of them quite severe trials. You can read about them in the scripture. Some of you face trials. Some of you face severe trials. But you can be confident that no matter what you face in this world, God is working all things in your life for your good and his glory. But as we look at this list a little, in a little bit more detail, let's zero in on a, on a few of these names in particular. Well, the first person that, that you're probably familiar with in this list is Zerubbabel, governor of Judah after the Babylonian exile from the book of Ezra. Now, he's a little less known than some of these others, but he is nonetheless an important figure. In Ezra 3.2, you can, you can see Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, building an altar to the God of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. This is again, this is after the Babylonian exiles. They've gone back to 
back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. They're, they're wanting to rebuild Jerusalem, but, but more importantly than that, they're wanting to rekindle worship in God. So there in 3.2, you see him, again, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. You can, you can see it's the same person because it's the way it's listed here. Um, you can see him building these, this altar. Then in, in 5.2, Ezra 5.2, you see Zerubbabel, again, son of Shealtiel, rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Now when you read through Ezra, you can see that, that he faced major opposition especially from the enemies of Judah under the guise that they wanted to actually help with the building project. But the prophecies in the books of, of Haggai and Zechariah are really centered around the, the prophetic encouragement to Zerubbabel from the Lord. That Zerubbabel is to, to complete the work that the Lord had for him. And the promise that the Lord will be with him. But that's not where the promises to Zerubbabel stop. Please turn with me in your Bible to, to Haggai. It's the, the third last book in the Old Testament, right before Zechariah. Just two chapters, it's easy to miss. It's before Zechariah. Haggai 2, from verses 5 to 9. I'm just going to read the whole thing. Haggai 2, verses 5 to 9. Right at the end of verse, of verse 5. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Do you see what's being prophesied to Zerubbabel there? This promise is that God is going to shake the nations and bring forth fruit for his glory. This is a promise that God is going to deliver people from every nation. The promise that, that this is the salvation is not just for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles, the nations. This is one of the great promises that, that we see in the, in the scriptures, and, it, and it's it fits very well, doesn't it, with Luke's message. Right? Luke's universal message that, that salvation is for not just Jews, but for the nations. This is precisely what Luke wants to communicate. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to Zerubbabel. Well, the next, for the next familiar person, we're going to have to go a little further down the list, all the way down to, to verse 31. Just before it, in, in verses 29 and 30, there's some other names that you're probably familiar with. Levi, Simeon, Judah, and Joseph. But those are not the same ones as the, the Levi, Simeon, Judah, and Joseph that we read about in Genesis. The men that are listed here in 29 and 30 come after David. But in verse 31, we see, of course, the name David, the son of Jesse. Verse 32, Israel's great king. Well, we first hear the name of, of David from another genealogy right at the end of the book of, of Ruth. In fact, David is the last word in the, in the book of Ruth. He's mentioned as the, the great-grandson of, of Boaz who was married to Ruth. We see David anointed king by Samuel the prophet in 1 Kings 16, killing Goliath in 1 Kings 17, and then running from his life from the rejected King Saul all the way until he's finally made king in 2 Samuel. But David's kingship is not the most important thing about David. Please turn with me to 2 Samuel verse 7, or chapter 7 rather. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Look here in, in verse 2. David says to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan understood his intent. No, no pun intended. He said in verse 3, Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord God is with you. So Nathan understands that, that, that David has a heart after God. And so, so Nathan says, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. You could can, you can go and build the temple. You can build a house for God. 
But, but the Lord speaks to Nathan, telling him to pass a message to David, telling him instead, verse 11, that the Lord will make you a house. Again, David had intended to make a house for the Lord, but the Lord says to him, I'm going to make you a house. Look at verse 12. The Lord promises that the Lord will establish the kingdom of one of David's offspring. This is the house that David is going to, that the Lord is going to build for David. I will, he will, I will establish his throne forever. Verse 13. I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Verse 14. Now this is partially fulfilled in Solomon, but it points infinitely beyond Solomon to Jesus. Jesus Christ is not just going to reign over Israel, but over all things as King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to David. Okay, so again, we, we see what we see again what, what God is, is doing here. This is this is bigger just than, than this list of names. It's bigger than just this genealogy. But there's other familiar names. Let's go down to, to the next really familiar name, verse 34, Abraham. Abraham is the father of Israel. Now we spent a long time with Abraham, didn't we, through our studies of Genesis. But just after Abraham was, then Abram, was introduced in, at the end of Genesis chapter 11, we see the Lord speaking to him in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse listen carefully, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this blessing is not just for Israel, but all of the nations of the earth. The Lord repeats these promises to Abraham in the form of, covenant, of a covenant, that his seed will be like the stars of, of the heavens and the sand of the seashore, Genesis 15, 15, and 22, 17. So stars like stars and like sand for number. But the number of descendants of Abraham is not just made up of Jews, but of Gentiles as well. That, that in Abraham, we receive the blessings of God. Again, this is precisely what Luke wants to communicate. Let's go to another very familiar name on this list, almost to the end. There at the beginning of verse 38. Adam. Adam. Adam is the father of the human race. Adam was, was born was so Adam was not born, he was created by God in the image of God. Now every other person on this list was, was born. And so again, we see, we see Jesus now tied to human beings. He's tied to the human race. Jesus is a son of Adam. He's a son of Adam. As I mentioned earlier, most genealogies go with... with with oldest to youngest, but Luke goes backwards. Yeah, this is the only place in Scripture where this happens. This is important. So Adam, as, as we're told here, is also considered the son of God. Adam was a federal head. Adam was the representative of the human race, our first forefather. Remember, Adam was created sinless. He, he, was, he was the only one who was, was born, was, I guess not born, was, was created morally neutral. He had the choice to either sin or not sin because he had not been affected by the fall. But because of Adam, there was a fall. Adam was tempted and he fell. And so in this, we see again this connection between Jesus and Adam. We see that Jesus is the better Adam. That Jesus is the last Adam. So again, we think about the fact that, that, um, that, that Adam was made in the image of God, but Jesus made all things. And that, that 
Adam was, was a son of God, but Jesus is the son of God. So in looking at this, just with, the, with just a, the few minutes we have left, let's consider another key thing that you need to do when you study genealogies. It's to consider what came before. What came immediately before the genealogies in order to understand the context, in order to understand the point. It, again, it's essential to understand the context if you want to understand the genealogy. What came immediately before Luke's genealogy of Jesus? The baptism of Jesus. Right? And the, the final verse before the genealogy began finishes with the Father's voice from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And now we're getting to Luke's main point in this genealogy. Jesus is not only human. He doesn't only come as the following this, this line of succession of, of human beings, but he is the Son of God. He's the Son of God. You are my beloved Son. So Jesus has the mandate for his mission. So again, Jesus, Jesus is the Son of Adam, but he's also the Son of God. Now, now again, Adam here is, is called a Son of God. There are many people in scriptures who are referred to as sons of God. Even the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 5 are referred to as sons of God. But, but you see in the scriptures you have, have kings and holy men referred to as sons of God. It's not necessarily a, a, mentioning divinity, but, but here again, because of what has come before, we can understand that Jesus is not just a son of God, he is the son of God. And in Jesus Christ, Galatians 3.26 in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So you get adopted into Jesus' genealogy through his blood. Not born by, by, biologically into the, the kingdom, but being born through the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and by the Holy Spirit applying the, the works of Jesus Christ to your account. So Jesus Christ, that is not just a son of God, he is the son of God. So when you're looking at a genealogy, it's important to understand what, what came before, but also it's important to understand what comes after. Look at, at Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verses, verses 1 to 13. The temptation of Jesus. The temptation of Jesus. And look at verse 2. Sorry, verse 3. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to be bread. He does it to Jesus again in verse 9. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. So again, we, we see this, this emphasis because of what came before, because of what comes afterward, we see the importance of Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus is the second Adam, the greater Adam. And Jesus, as we think about what, what took place leading up to these events, this, these lists of, of human beings that were born and died, born and died, born and died, we see also that Jesus is the promise, the seed of the promise that was made to Adam from Genesis 3.15. That Jesus is the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. And then what do you see happening in the very next chapter? Jesus defeating Satan. You know, it, it just, it, when, I, when I began to see this, it really, it blew me away to think about, about the genius behind ordering the scriptures like this. We, we saw this before. We saw this before with, with, the, with the way that, that Luke um, puts, puts John and Jesus next to each other, but then shows that, that, in the, that they're very similar in some respects, but that, that Jesus is, is infinitely greater than John. And then we see also just, just what is doing, what is happening here, the way this is organized. This is genius. But this is not just Luke's genius. This is God's genius. 
Because every word of God is inspired. It's not just the words, but also the way they're arranged. The way they come together like this reveals who Jesus is. And it's presented there for you to, to understand and to worship him. As the fulfillment to, to all those promises. The promises to Zerubbabel. The promises to David. The promises to Abraham. The promises to Adam. Jesus Christ, who is both the son of Adam and the son of of God. Let me close with these words from Matthew Henry. Christ was both the son of Adam and the son of God that he might be a proper mediator between God and the sons of Adam and might bring the sons of Adam to be through him the sons of God. All flesh as descended from the first Adam is as grass withers and withers as the flower of the field. But he who partakes of the Holy Spirit of life from the second Adam has that eternal happiness by which the gospel is preached unto us. Are you in the first Adam or in the last Adam? Are you in Adam, dead in your trespasses and sins? Or are you in Jesus Christ, adopted in the family of God? What is your relationship with the Son of God? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for your supreme wisdom. For your supreme wisdom in recording these, these glorious truths for us in your holy word. Lord, in giving us your Holy Spirit to enlighten these truths to our hearts and to our minds, empowering us through your Holy Spirit to, to grow in our love for you, to grow in our worship for you, for you, to grow in our obedience towards you. We praise you for your supreme wisdom in, in these passages of Scripture, but Lord, we praise you even more for the wisdom of the gospel that is recorded here for us. We praise you for your supreme wisdom in sending Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, to live the life we could never live, to die the death that we deserve to die, to be raised on the third day to show that you are satisfied that he had fulfilled everything that was required in order for us to be saved. We praise you, Lord, that all your promises to us in Christ are yes and amen. Amen.